This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi everyone, Theta here again. Not Quite Daily Show, Episode 2, the Summer 2017 Season. I'm deciding to go ahead and just stick with Maiden Abyss for this whole season, and we'll worry about expanding our format in the fall. Today's episode I have broken into six scenes, it's really one long scene and five shorter scenes, and then we'll go ahead and talk about the opening uh, during this episode. We'll talk about the closing credits during uh, next episode. After that we will once again talk about the five main story qualities, and I have left these filled out from our previous episode so we can observe how they've changed from the end of last episode to the end of this one. Then we'll once again talk about what we're watching for in the future and engage in some speculation. Alright, let's go. So our first scene actually wraps around the opening credits and extends all the way until Reg has been accepted into the orphanage and starts going about the daily life there. Now even though there's some time and space jumps in here, this is really all the same scene. All these little parts all serve the same purpose. So we're going to treat it as a single unit. Starting right off looking at our goals or goal progression, we said last time that one of the goals for this entire little gang of orphans is to keep Reg a secret. And that is really what is driving this entire scene. Shiggy once again is our plan master, and he decides on the reliable hide in plain sight plan. Now they concoct this little backstory for Reg, they throw his amnesia into the mix because good lies need a little bit of truth to them, and they present it all to Leader. Now I suspect Leader is not actually taken in by this. He brings up the incident at the edge of the abyss, but then lets it go, and goes to introduce Reg to the director. Now the director seems mostly disinterested, doesn't even seem to look at Reg during this brief exchange. She's way more interested in the relic in her hand, and thinking probably about the riches it may be able to bring her and the orphanage. Realistically, from the director's point of view, if Reg can potentially bring them in more relics, then he's fine with her. She doesn't really care that much. So it actually seem, at least for the short term, that we've already met this goal of keeping Reg hidden. By letting him just act like he's a normal member of the orphanage, the orphanage itself provides his cover story. We also have minor progress on our finding out Reg's past goal. In the form of Rico talking about the star compass, we learn that the star compass points towards the abyss, and Rico believes Reg has come up from the abyss. Finding out about the abyss and finding out about Reg are the same goal in Rico's mind. We know they're separate goals, but to her, for now, they're the same goal. Now we also get our first unknown goal in the form of a question that Reg kind of poses to himself. He wonders what he came up here to do. This is during the discussion of all the things that make him hardier than a normal human. He seems tailor-made for dwelling in the abyss, so why is he not in the abyss? Now, just because he doesn't know what his goal is, he clearly had one to come up here, and what it is and why he was set on that path will almost certainly show up in the future. It's just something we know is an unknown right now. Now during the same discussion where they're talking about all the remarkable things about Reg, you realize that he's an extremely valuable specimen. They even call him a supreme treasure of the netherworld. This actually gives us a new conflict. Reg would clearly be a huge prize for whatever forces in this world buy and sell relics, use them for study or for power or for 
Whatever. I mean, people have been excavating down this abyss for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it seems like Reg might be the greatest prize to ever come up out of it. You better believe there will be all kinds of people after him if they knew what he was. Now we also get a little advancement as far as figuring out about Reg in general, because being able to join the orphanage and start to train as a cave raider means he's going to have access to the abyss again. It's going to be much more likely that they're going to find out what's going on with him. His expressed desire to be a cave raider is probably not just Shiggy putting him up to it. At this point, he probably is very curious about finding out more about himself as well, and knows the secret lies below. Alright, so we get a little bit of a characterization in this scene. It starts off with Rico waxing poetic about the star compass and its purpose and how it points to the abyss. It's clear from the other members' reactions that she does this sort of thing all the time. And then they get to talking about the compilation of recorded relics and talking about Reg's stats, which she has dutifully researched. And now it's clear from her description here that she has poked and prodded and done all sorts of things to poor Reg. I guess while he's asleep or something. And while it's very amusing, it also reveals that Rico is still not quite treating him with respect as a fellow human being. Like, I don't know if Rico just has no regard for other people this way, or if it's just because she sees Reg as partially a thing, partially a pet, partially a person. But everyone else gets increasingly embarrassed and increasingly apologetic as she goes on down her list. There's kind of an interesting contrast here where Rico, the human, is being very robot-like and detached in her analysis, while Reg, the robot, is having a very human-like response to all this revealing information and the things that have been done to him. I realize we're already starting to take this for granted, but Reg clearly acts just like a normal human being. Indeed, he's a little more self-aware even than Rico. You can see his sort of embarrassment as she sidles up to him and is otherwise affectionate, but it's clear from her little analysis of him and the things she did to him that maybe he's not quite a human in her mind yet. Which may be why she's not embarrassed, but he is. When Rico's solution to the problem of Reg is to simply hide him in her room, there is mention that she had a dog in the past, and that got found out. And I wonder if this is not the original Reg. Maybe that's why he so easily fits into that mold in her mind. A new pet, a new plaything, a new curiosity. Nato's once again the voice of reason. Shiggy once again comes up with a plan. Uh, I think the only interesting thing about the characterization here is that Leader almost certainly understands that something is fishy about Reg's story, but he rolls with it. We get to see that the director cares way more about the relic in her hand than she does the, the new child under her charge. And I suspect that Leader actually knows this, and is pretending to buy Reg's story, and this way he gets to join the orphanage and he can kind of keep an eye on him. And while he's joining this orphanage and starts going about the daily tasks, he seems to fit in fine. Other people notice that he's a little bit different, but not so different it weirds them out. Like, no one seems very bothered about whatever it is he's wearing on his head, or the fact that he walks around with red band-aids on his cheeks all the time. But whatever, maybe there's lots of strange things going on in this world. In his role as quasi-point-of-view character, we get to see that Rico's not a very good student. He observes her sleeping in class once, and then he observes her being distracted by a dragonfly once. For all her desire to be a white whistle, Rico doesn't seem to be taking it very seriously, or maybe she's just not capable of concentrating enough to take it seriously. As far as world building elements go for this uh, scene, we learned a lot. I'm gonna bring this up a lot, but the series continues to do a very good job of teasing out the details of this world in a very natural way. Rico talking about how the star compass works, as well as her thorough analysis of Reg, not only tells us aspects of these things, it's totally in line with her curiosity and fascination and dreaming state about everything to do with the Abyss. And Reg is simply in that category for her now. The audience also finds out for the first time about the curse of the Abyss, and the various ways it prevents people from going further down. This actually makes a lot of sense. Why would this place be completely mysterious and so much of it unexplored if people have been here for almost two millennia? And the answer is, the depths and the creatures and whatever else is down there is not the only barrier. Much like the increasing pressure of the ocean makes it hard for us to explore the depths, 
the increasing physiological drawbacks of being in the abyss prevent most people from getting very far down. We also get a brief look at the existence of this compilation of recorded relics book. Relics are obviously a very big deal in this world that we actually have field guides to them. They're clearly well-researched and well-known information. We also learned that Rico's mother was not just a cave explorer, but actually brought back one of these relics that's important enough to be recorded in this little book. Specifically, this unheard bell, a bell that stops time. Okay, so if relics are capable of stopping time, obviously they are a big deal. Obviously they might be able to do some pretty crazy things. Suddenly the frenzied sort of gold rush mentality of this town makes a little more sense. Mentioned it before, but Rico's sort of analysis of Reg's body and the things it can do, mostly the things it can withstand, will almost all certainly come back into play later. For now, it's enough to know that he's rather exceptional as far as all these things go. This was a way to just go ahead and let us know all these things so they're not a surprise later, and brings up the whole topic of the fact that he probably could survive in the Abyss, lets us talk about the curse of the Abyss and how he's probably immune to it, and gives us that new conflict about how he would be a very desirable thing to own should anyone find out what he is. Now, to talk about themes in this scene, um, as far as our existing themes go, we get a little bit of advancement in the power of friendship. That's gonna be a theme that's woven throughout this whole thing. In this case, with Reg actually joining the orphanage and kind of blending in, he gets to lose some of his outsider status. This moves us one step forward to him being accepted as just one of the gang by their little circle who knows the truth about him. Since I don't think Rico quite sees him as a person yet, I don't think the power of friendship is in full effect, but I suspect there will likely come a point in time, a specific scene in the future, where the lights come on for her, she sees him as another person, and then the bond of their friendship will be that much stronger. We do have a little more of this world of children idea. The plan they concoct to fool Leader is a little naive, and I don't think they realize that Leader kind of sees through them, but has his own reasons for letting it play out. And that's this first very long scene as I see it. It really is almost still part of the first episode in the sense that it's really setting the series up for us. Because now that the immediate problem of Reg and what to do with him has been solved, we can deal with much bigger conflicts, much bigger mysteries, and uncover more and more of this very interesting world as in the next scene. So our next scene involves Rico and the gang visiting someone named Lafi at her little shop, where they spend some time talking about her husband, Habo, who is an accomplished cave diver just like they hope to be. Habo, it seems, has a goal of his own, which is to be a white whistle, the same goal that Rico has, and we see in a portrait that the the whistle he currently wears is black. Laffy makes a comment about how he still wants to be a white whistle even at his age, which actually sheds some light on Rico's goal of being a white whistle, which is to say that it's obviously very hard and might take a really long time and you might not ever get there. Nothing in this scene advances anything about conflicts, doesn't introduce any new ones at all, but we do learn a little bit more about our characters. We basically have Laffy and Habo sort of introduced into the series. Habo gets to meet a little more of later. In this scene, we don't necessarily learn a lot about the two of them, but they help characterize our other characters, mostly Rico. The whole scene starts with her spying through a telescope about the goings-on of the abyss, some of the creatures nearby, and Lafayette makes a comment about how she never gets tired of that. This just goes back to Rico's unfailing curiosity, but also that outside of the orphanage, we have adults who are very sympathetic and rather friendly towards Rico and the gang. Learning that a white whistle might in fact be a very hard goal to get to maybe suggests that Rico is a little bit naive about her chances, especially since she thinks she can get there with any kind of haste. Now, whether this is just because Rico is naive or just because she's so optimistic that it turns into that, hard to tell. I suspect that Rico is both. The two do sort of feed into each other. We also have a very brief bit where Rico fetches something off the shelf without anyone seeing. And I think really this is just supposed to demonstrate to us that he has gained mastery over his robotness, that he's no longer having misfires with his hand. In fact, he's able to grab what sounds like a breakable jar off of a shelf and retrieve it with no harm done. Now we learn a few more little details about the world. 
The birds that Rico is watching through the telescope are hammerbeaks, which are the things referenced in that first episode that they noticed were not making any sound that day. Now, besides just putting a face to the name, so to speak, you also see that these things have massive predators, but the hammerbeaks are not actually scared of this thing and swarm it and try to drive it off. This means that whatever scared them off the other day is a bigger threat than this giant thing that clearly eats them. We also have this exchange between Laffy and Rico about the inverted forest, a part of the abyss where things basically grow upside down. Now Laffy makes an offhanded comment about you act like you've seen it with your own eyes. This would be foreshadowing. We do actually learn in this episode that that may be true. It seems unlikely she would have remembered, but we'll get to that. But we do get another detail teased out about the abyss and how strange things may be down there. Lastly, as the kids are sort of leaving the shop and having a little discussion, we have an exchange where we learn that the white whistles really are rare, and they're actually kind of national heroes. And it's explained that they have no depth limit which I guess tells us that the whistles all have a sort of range they can operate into. Lastly, there is the bit where Rico refers to Laffy as her aunt and Habo as uncle. I think this just may be the thing in Japanese where kids refer to adults with sort of informal titles. They may not actually be her blood aunt and uncle. Otherwise, Rico would probably be living with them and not in the orphanage, presumably. So now two months have passed in Reg's narration, and it's only three days until he's gonna go on his first cave raid. And this moves him closer to the goal of starting to find out more about himself and gives us a sense of the timeline in the near future. Now we know from before that cave raiding can be fairly dangerous, so there's a little bit of a conflict kind of hanging over the whole thing. But if the kids have been raiding this whole time with no other incidents that we're told about anyway, then maybe danger is real, but few and far between. We can probably be apprehensive, but mostly optimistic about this impending cave raid. Now we don't have a sense of what it actually looks like to normally go from brand new to cave raider status, but I feel like at the very least this shows us that Reg is competent, hasn't caused any trouble with the authorities that would keep him from going on this raid, but that is not the next event of any import, because we find out that Habo, mentioned just before, has returned. It seems then that a lot of these raids are actually very long. Some of them are multi-month expeditions, not the day trip that we saw Rico go on earlier. Now our gang rushes over to the Grand Pier, where we discover a lot of other people have gathered, and we see Habo and his little expedition party uh, come off the pier. Now he's holding a sort of envelope, and on top of it what turns out to be a white whistle, and someone in the crowd recognizes that it belongs to Liza, Liza the Annihilator. Now the crowd all seems very happy about this. It's interesting to note that Reg zeroes right in on the crux of the matter, and he says, why just her whistle? Much like in the first scene where Reg was sort of zeroing in on the fact that he must have some goal he doesn't know about, what did I come up here to do? It seems Reg has a certain knack for seeing right to the heart of a matter. And he's right, why just a whistle? Why not the person it belongs to? People are cheering and excited, but where is this person they're cheering? But we have no time to wonder about any of this because Rico gives us the startling revelation that this Liza the Annihilator character is her mother. This is the first time Rico's mother has been named. It's the first thing we've learned about her besides the fact that she was a white whistle, which we still don't know quite what that is, or the fact that she discovered the unheard bell. I think it's kind of surprising to learn that she's kind of a folk hero, that she's so well known that someone can recognize the design of her whistle from afar and everyone would know who he was talking about and begin cheering, being excited. We haven't met Liza at all, but clearly she's an accomplished, celebrated person. Rico's reaction, however, is not excitement. Now, what kind of new things do we learn from this scene? For one thing, that these expeditions last for months. Another, that it's kind of a big deal to have these explorers return. Clearly the population is all on board with how exciting and important all these excavation trips are. Um, we see from Habo's return party that it's kind of a mix of whistles. He's got the black whistle, but everyone else with him has purple whistles, just like Leader. And we get a look at what our strange sort of mysterious authority figure from the first episode is. 
wearing these purple cloaks with uh, white flowers on the back. These obviously are involved in some sort of official capacity with these expeditions. We'll later learn they're basically guild officials. We also, right at the beginning of this, discovered that the kids in the orphanage wear bells before their red whistles, so it's like a step below being a red whistle. I was kind of relieved to find out that there was a purpose to that bell. It wasn't just one more reminder that, hey, Reg is being treated like a pet. Let's literally put a collar on a bell on him, but no that seems to have a real purpose. Well, now we don't yet know why all these things are noise-making, like whistles and bells. There must be some reason for that. But like everything else in the show so far, they're just teasing this information out as it becomes relevant. Now the bringing back of Liza's whistle initiates a sort of festival they're calling the Resurrection Festival, which is where this episode gets its title. Now I have no idea what the resurrection part of that means. Uh, I didn't get a sense that we are supposed to understand that from this episode. It may be that there's a kind of mythology around this whole cave raiding thing that we just don't know about yet. Anyway, this scene is mostly exposition. It's mostly a very creative way of getting some information to us. It starts with this kabuki theater-like puppet show that the orphanage is putting on that is explaining to us both how the whistle hierarchy works, something I've been wondering myself, and the rough details of our folk hero Liza the Annihilator, Rico's mom. Now this kabuki theater bit is a fantastic bit of exposition because it pieces information out to us, the audience, in a way that totally makes sense for the universe. We didn't have one character telling the other, as you know, the whistle ranks go like this, or as you know, Liza the Annihilator this way and that way. Instead we get this amusing dramatization that is being put on by children for other children. It's really like we, the audience, are just kind of getting to tag along and see it which is exactly how exposition should be done. We'll go ahead and go through it, but apparently the whistle hierarchy is the red, the apprentices that we've already seen. Blue whistles seems to be the next one down. Then there are the moon whistles, these purple ones, which are also called assistant instructor. And then there are the black ones like Habo, which are our expert cave raiders. And then apparently as in their own sort of class is the white whistles, those who surpass their human limitations. As we already know from Habo's example, being a white whistle is not a foregone conclusion. Clearly these are the elite of the elite and have to overcome quite a bit to be bestowed this honor. And now we learn that Liza, even among the White Whistles, may be the greatest of them all, the most celebrated figure in the entire history of this system, or even of this city. Which of course would explain all the fanfare. Apparently she has been gone for 10 years, and what I personally think is the most surprising thing, she wasn't presumed dead all this time. Now maybe I'm crazy, but because Rico lives in an orphanage, I was going under the assumption that she was an orphan. It seems instead that the actual status of her mother has been in question for most of her life. Maybe she's been presumed dead all this time, but always the faint chance that maybe she was okay. Return of her whistle by Habo, which of course should be attached to her, seems to settle the matter, even though no one says this on the nose, that seems to be what all this is about. This would certainly explain why Rico seemed to not know how to react to the news that that was her whistle that Habo had brought back. We also get a new bit of information, which is that in addition to the Curse of the Abyss, in addition to the sort of violent creatures we already know about, those who explore below run into foreign cave raiders. Now here's an instance where I wish I knew Japanese enough to know if that the word they're translating as foreign literally means another nationality, or if it means more like an outsider or unknown. But apparently one of the things you have to deal with down there is the violence and competition of other cave raiders. For our video game turns, turns out the Abyss is not just a multi-level dungeon full of creatures and riches, but it's also PvP enabled. This then introduces a whole new conflict into our story, which is that of foreign cave raiders. They're now a background threat, potentially to our characters, but clearly to the city and the type of expeditions that go down. So as far as things we learn about our characters from this brief scene, uh, we learn more about Liza's details, I, I talked about that. She's clearly a figure of legend. 
However, we also learned this little play is actually being put on by the orphanage, and they're selling replica whistles. In fact, trying to entreat you to make sure you only buy them from the orphanage and are not fooled by imitations. It seems that our director is not above exploiting the apparent death of Liza if it results in a little profit for her orphanage. I mean, man, that is cynical. Now the next scene is mostly a talk between Rico and Leader, um, though it begins with Rico sitting by herself being very pensive and having a little bit of a flashback. Now I want to say at the outset that I think this might actually be the best scene in the series so far. We learn a lot about some of our characters and about the world, but the whole thing has a lot of emotional weight to it. Now this whole scene starts with Rico being very sedate, and here's where our characterization of her to this point pays off, because this is such an obvious departure from how we've seen her this whole time. We realize the gravity of the situation, we realize how conflicted she is, we realize this may be very new territory for her. She has probably been feeling this way ever since the whistle came up. Now she seems confused in this flashback scene, where Habo is presenting the whistle to her, and she's not totally sure what to do, how to feel about it. Habo, we get to learn, is very magnanimous, very gregarious. He's very smiling, reassuring. He's very sensitive to what Rico must be feeling. And as we've learned a little bit more about the guild and about maybe the geopolitics of this world, you get the sense that Habo might be a little bit naive about the guild, honestly. That there might be some unsavory aspects to it that he's a little bit oblivious to. He seems like he might be one of those kind of people that is so good, he doesn't understand people who aren't good. Now, Habo does make a remark about Liza's whistle earlier that I don't totally understand at this point. He points out that that whistle can only be used by its original owner. Now, we don't know if that's a quality of this whistle in particular or all white whistles, but the question I have is, what do you mean used? Like, what are these whistles used for? Why whistles? Do the whistles do something besides just making a lot of loud noise? I mean, like, my understanding of, like, expiration and so forth, is it having noisemakers like whistles is a survival thing? If you get trapped somewhere, it's a way of calling attention to the fact that you need help? But maybe there's more to this? I mean, I just thought they were largely symbolic, but what kind of whistle would exist that only one person could use? And why would it matter that only one person could use it? Anyway, Leader finds Rico in the state and knows he needs to say something to her. He wants her to enjoy and appreciate the festival, but again, what is unsaid here is that the whistle coming back probably means Liza's dead for sure, but no one wants to talk about this. No one wants to be on the nose about it. The scene does a fantastic job of characterizing the leader because of the things he's going to choose to say to Rico and the way he's going to say them. But to begin with, just getting Rico to talk and open up about how she's feeling is such a great thing for someone to do with a child who's clearly a little confused. And Rico is confused. We find out that she really doesn't have much of a sense of who her mother is. She was only two when she left, so she barely even has memories of her, and she's presumably been in the orphanage all this time. Now we already know about Director, clearly not a mother figure. So Rico's concept of what a mother is is probably mostly hypothetical. Liza, to her, is kind of the concept of a mother, but is as much a folk hero to her as she is to the rest of the townspeople. Rico doesn't really have a mother-child emotional attachment to her. Now Rico knows she should be feeling something, but she's not. She doesn't know what she's supposed to feel. And so Leader, kind of seeing this, just starts to help fill in the gaps. It's clear no one's ever set Rico down and tried to understand what she actually understands about her mother. And so Leader spins out this great tale, but he begins the whole thing by asking about her eyes. It's clear he's made the decision that the time to tell Rico the truth has come. And that truth is that Rico was born in the abyss. It's why she has trouble with her eyes, it's why she has to wear these special glasses. And that revelation, of course, means he needs to tell the whole story. Now I'm going to sort of mix our characterization and world building sections together here because the sexual story he tells her tells us a lot about Liza and also about the world itself. It seems that the reason Rico was born in the abyss 
had nothing to do with Liza being reckless or not understanding how dangerous that is, but because, despite being pregnant, she was ordered down by the powers that be. This gives us the first sense that there is some sort of controlling government or other entity that actually orders our cave raiders to do the things they do, and that they don't care about pesky things like the danger of childbearing inside the abyss, or trying to do this while very pregnant. Anyway, as it turns out, their dive lasts for 10 months. So of course she was born sometime during that span. The thing they were after turns out to be that very same unheard bell that Rico pointed out in the book way back in the first scene. Now while we don't know for sure the status of Rico's mother, it seems her father, Torka, is for sure dead because he died on this expedition. He was never around to actually see Rico be born, it sounds like. It seemed then that what caused the majority of the casualties were actually these foreign cave raiders, this new sort of development that we only just found out about. Obviously a very big threat if almost the whole party was wiped out. Clearly this foreign raiders thing is a very big deal. And Liza, the Annihilator, gets her name in part because of how effective not just as a cave raider, but as apparently as a type of enforcer or warrior against these encroaching factions. Anyway, things like the unheard bell that can stop time, whatever that actually means, are clearly of great significance and potential political power. So I guess it makes sense that nation states would get involved in the retrieval of these things, and in fact go to war of them. But we also learn about another kind of relic, one that she's taken with her, which helps protect from the effects of the Curse of the Abyss. And she does this specifically because she knows she's pregnant. The trick with this relic that protects Rico, however, is that it's heavy. It's very heavy. So heavy that as their party dwindles in manpower, a terrible choice presents itself. Abandon the unheard bell, the thing they came down here to get that so many people have died in the pursuit of, or abandon Rico. Now while it might seem obvious that a mother would choose her child in this situation, she's not just a mother. She's the leader of this entire group. She's the most famous, most renowned white whistle explorer in the world. And she's just dealt with the death of most of her comrades. There's a literal pile of empty hats. So clearly an expedition of this magnitude is a much bigger deal than just a single family relationship. But Liza chooses Rico anyway. Despite it sounding like Liza might not have a lot of redeeming qualities aside from her cave raiding ability, she chooses Rico anyway. Now they do an absolutely fantastic thing with the way they're retelling the scene, in which the whole thing has just been illustrations, almost as if Leader was telling her a story and turning the pages. But when it gets to the actual part where Liza is choosing Rico and deciding against all odds to try to get her up out of the abyss, it actually becomes animated. We actually get to see that action taking place. So what is already sort of the emotional high point of the story gets this clear departure in style from the rest of it, and it subtly reinforces how big of a deal this is. Now Liza, it appears, gets Rico up and out of the abyss and takes her seemingly straight to the orphanage where she is handed off to a young leader. Now it's clear from the way the leader is telling the story that he really, really admires Liza. And while it would stand to reason that someone in this line of work would admire her for her cave raiding and for the other things that cause her renown, you get the sense that it was this act that makes her stand out so much in his mind. That to leader, maybe Liza is not the greatest white whistle in the world, but as the woman who gave up and risked everything to save her daughter. Now it appears Liza does go back down, she settles the score with the foreign raiders, brings up the unheard bell, and gets the accolades that she so clearly deserves. Her actual eventual success is kind of beside the point though. The point of Leader's story is to tell Rico all this and say, someone gave up a lot for you to be here. A price was paid for the life you have. What are you going to do with it? Now Rico is just a kid, uh, 12 years old it appears, but to her credit, she absolutely understands what Leader is saying to her, and she thanks him. She thanks him for the story. She thanks him for the inspiration. And she snaps out of the sort of malaise she's been in for a few days. Now as Rico runs off, Leader does make a comment 
that suggests that there's actually more to this story, but it may not be appropriate for Rico's ears for whatever reason. And this, I think, goes back to Leader being protective of Rico. I kind of had gotten that sense before, you know, I mentioned last episode where I think he intentionally set her a goal that she couldn't meet. And now we find out he actually has a very personal reason for being invested in Rico and looking after her. Now through this whole story, we do actually uncover a new conflict for our universe. Clearly there are some sort of geopolitical struggles, shadow war, armed conflict. This is not necessarily the happy town of adventuring, mining town kind of thing it seemed like in the first episode. I think one of the things that increases the danger of this conflict is that our orphans are just not aware of it. We're seeing things through their point of view, and all they see is the next relic raid, the next thing they're going for, the new friends, getting out of trouble in school. This sort of nation-state power struggle that seems to be going on and has been going on is not on their radar at all. They don't know to be afraid of it, they don't know to take caution because of it. Now, I suspect this will change, but for now we just know sometime in the future this is probably going to matter. This is probably going to have a more direct impact on our characters' lives. Now from this whole scene, we again get this world of children thing, the things children don't know, the lies that it's easy to tell them, like about the glasses and hiding the Curse of Abyss effects from her, but also the need to hide maybe some of the details of Liza's annihilating from her daughter. As I just mentioned in the sort of new conflict category, the dark side of this world of children too is that they're insulated from information which might frighten them or scare them, but that same information might make them more aware of the danger that they are in. Now I'm going to suggest that this scene and the next little short scene actually introduce a sort of new theme, and that is that the truth is buried. There's obviously a lot going on in this story, in this world, that we the audience are still unaware of, but it's clear a lot of the characters in this universe are also unaware. If you've just gone 10 years without even knowing if your sort of folk hero is even alive or not, and there's clearly various higher powers vying for control of these relics, there's a strange sort of exploitive situation of the orphanage, and then there's just the vast amount of things unknown about the abyss, you begin to feel like a lot of what this series is going to be about is about uncovering all this truth, excavating it out just like they are doing to all these relics. Truth about Liza, truth about the Abyss, truth about Reg, truth about all the intrigue going on that the children are not even aware of. Anyway, one big addition to this in the next scene, so let's get to that. So our last short scene starts with Rico being visibly happy about the talk she and Leader had and how she sort of incorporated that into her worldview. Reg has a good idea to just ask her directly why, but they get interrupted with the news that Rico can now view the letter that Habo brought up that is presumably from Rico's mother. Traveling to the guild headquarters and viewing this letter takes up the rest of the episode. Now we get some real goal progress here in this last scene, because these sketches actually tell us a lot. All the creatures and so forth that are in the pages are unknown to the people on the surface, so Liza has clearly gone way beyond the known world. Among all these sketches is something that looks very much like Reg. This means that the way they're trying to solve the goal of Reg's past is probably on point. The truth is probably down there in the abyss. Maybe so far down that no one else has ever been there, which is what the rest of the drawings of Liza suggest. But this enigmatic little mystery, in fact, introduces a whole new goal. An unknown goal, but a new goal. Because part of Liza's letter is a sentence that they translate as, at the netherworld's bottom, I'll be waiting. Now this means that this is not just a few pages of her journal that somebody found. This is a direct message to the surface, to maybe Rico or someone else in particular. This means that Liza's notes and the whistle had a purpose. Liza has a goal. That's why she did this. We don't know what that goal is, but I'm willing to bet it has set a few events in motion. Now there's no real change to our conflicts in this scene, except that you have to wonder how the guild is going to interpret this stuff, because they clearly poured over it before they ever let Rico see it. The cynic in me sort of wonders if it's all there anyway, but I guess we'll find out. 
The only thing new we really learn about characters in this scene is that Liza can be a little cryptic, but that may very well be a bit of cunning. It may be she has to obscure her goal from certain authorities. Even though technically we're learning more about the world, that there's way more stuff down there, the abyss, that clearly humans can get to, we really almost feel like we know less now. Because Liza had been given up for dead sometime in the past 10 years, and now kind of officially being given up for dead now that her whistle has come back. But it now seems very obvious that she was alive and gave the whistle on purpose. It's almost like leaving her whistle was a way of proving the authenticity of what was in that letter. If that whistle is special, can't be used by anyone else like they indicated, then it means it's a one-of-a-kind item. It's absolutely a signature. Finally then, the theme that I talked about in the last scene really gets a little more legs here. The truth is buried. There's obviously a lot we don't know, and it seems like most of it is down below. So at this point, I want to talk about the opening credits. There's been a trend over the last few years where a lot of animes don't actually play the opening credits at the very beginning of the series. Frequently, they'll actually use the opening credits as the ending credits to the very first episode, or, alternatively, they'll wait until the second episode to play either the opening credits or the end credits that they'll use for the rest of the series, and that's the case for Maiden Abyss. One of the good reasons to do this is that opening credits often have some spoilerific material to them, especially for the first episode where things are largely being set up. There might be some big reveal, big hook in the first episode that the opening credits would give away if they're one of the first things you see for the series. So looking at the opening theme we have for Maiden Abyss, in contrast to the sort of wistful inset piece we have in the first episode that played over the little montage, the opening piece for Maiden Abyss is kind of upbeat, it's kind of adventurous. Now, you can't count on the tone of an opening piece to match the tone of a series in anime. See what I mean? But I would say that this piece supports the tone of the series to this point. It is mostly upbeat, mostly wide-eyed and adventurous, with just a little undercurrent of danger to it. So looking at the actual imagery of this opening piece, we have couples of sequences that appear a few times. One is the impression of Rico and Reg falling into deep water or drowning or otherwise sinking down. But there's also two sequences of the two of them sort of searching through the upper levels of the abyss, both clearly looking for something. And then when they spot each other and they run to embrace, and they're kind of overjoyed at what they found. The screen time dedicated to these two sequences suggests kind of a theme of searching. Maybe searching without actually knowing what you're searching for, but some sense of completion or wonder or happiness at having found each other. We know a little bit about Rico and what she's searching for and all that. Reg's goal is a little bit mysterious, but one of the things this opening piece may be about is how that regardless what the two of them are searching for, the important thing is that they found each other. There's a couple other images that make recurring appearance in this. Shots of the white five-pointed flower show up a couple times. Um, we've seen that this is part of the emblem on the guild cloaks, so it's likely going to have some kind of symbolic meaning in the future, or at least be representative of something to do with the guild, something to do with cave raiding, something to do with the abyss, or at least this town. The other one is the star compass. It's actually one of the very first images. And we said already we knew it would be important just because of the way they've treated it in the story so far. And this opening piece simply re-emphasizes that. It's probably very much related to this theme of searching that Rico and Reg are involved in during this opening number. So that's kind of the overall macro things that are going on in this opening. A lot of the rest of the imagery is shots of things we haven't seen yet necessarily. We see this kind of upside down forest and buildings in that, which is probably the inverted forest that Rico and Laffy will talk about later in the episode. We see a green pod tree thing. There's this crazy disc-shaped city with a spinning wall and a giant light of bee that looks like it's at the very bottom of a chasm or something, or maybe the whole abyss. There's a pair of cave divers that we haven't met yet. There's a little bunny squirrel kind of thing hanging out with Reg during his sort of searching phase in this opening. But since we haven't met that in the episode yet, and he doesn't seem to remember anything beyond that, I'm guessing it is some little sort of animal friend that he was traveling with before his bit of amnesia. There's also a girl that's also kind of bunny-like that shares a bit of a look with Reg. At least they kind of have the same skin tone 
eye thing going on. We'll see if that's a coincidence or not. I'm guessing these are people we're all gonna meet in the near future. Also, a freaking Cylon shows up for a second. I mean, that's a whole other class of robot, but never mind, we'll get to it, clearly. And then lastly, we have this kind of painterly, impressionistic almost image of what is surely Rico's mom. Now, I like that this is in a painter kind of style, very different from every other image we see. It's more like a painting, less like a photograph. It's almost like it's an ideal, that it is as indistinct and inexact as the image that Rico herself has of Liza. The memory and understanding that Rico has of her mother is just as idealistic and impressionistic as this little painting is. I suspect one of the things the series will be about is about Rico getting a clearer picture of who her mother really is. So that finishes our look at the actual content of this episode. Now we're gonna look again at what our goals, conflicts, characterization, world building themes were from the previous episode. See how things have changed, added to, been advanced, altered, whatever. Starting off with the goals, it may be that that middle goal of the whole gang keeping Reg a secret may have been solved. I mentioned this earlier, but solving the immediate goal of hiding him from the authorities within the orphanage might actually solve the problem for all time, because now he's simply a member of this orphanage and it provides his cover. So I'm gonna cross that one off. We'll see if that secret remains so. We're still determined to uncover what Reg's connection to the Abyss is and what his past is, so nothing's really changed on that front. The only thing is that we've gotten a little more information in that Liza has run into, if not Reg himself, someone very like Reg, as evidenced by her sketches. His impending first cave raid here in a few days is also related to this goal. Helps advance it because he's gonna get to go back into the abyss now, which is gonna be our best bet at making some progress on this goal. Um, Rico's goal of following her mother's footsteps and exploring the abyss has changed a little bit. Like I said, I feel like we can be forgiven for thinking Rico was an orphan this whole time, with the whole living in an orphanage thing. To find out that her mother's status has been unknown all this time is kind of interesting. It seems the return of the whistle makes people assume she is dead, but the message in the letter, to me, suggests the opposite. I mean, it means that Rico's whole thing about becoming a white whistle, exploring as far as her mother did, and her haste to do so, has a completely different subtext now, because she's simply not trying to emulate her mother, she's trying to find her. She's trying to be reunited to her. This has way more gravity than just childish naivete or exuberance. This is about a family getting back together. So now it's clear that following her mother's footsteps is not the end, it's the means. It's the means to the end of being reunited, about discovering the truth about who her mother is and what, if anything, the two of them can be to each other, assuming Liza is still alive. We're also introduced to two goals that we know exist, but we don't know what they are. One is whatever it was that Reg was sent up to do, meaning he had some goal that brought him to the surface in the first place, but he doesn't remember it. And then there's Liza's goal in sending the letter, the documents, and her whistle via Hoppo. Now, it may be that these goals are actually related, but I'm sure we'll actually pursue them slash solve them uh, independent of each other. If they are related, that might be something we only learn later on. So dealing with our conflicts as they stand, there's no advancement at all on what caused Reg's amnesia. There's no advancement at all on what caused the disturbance that brought the split draw up. Rico's theft of the star compass still hangs over us. That seems like a lower conflict compared to their need to hide Reg. So there may be nothing to it. It's the kind of thing they've mentioned enough that I still feel like it'll come back into play. But for now, there's no advancement at all. We do get the world colored in a little bit on this whole orphans are in a dangerous situation in the sense that any doubts we've had about the director's character and how she sees the orphans is kind of put to bed during the sequence in which Reg is inducted into the orphanage, and then the later sequence where we see them selling the replica whistles to benefit the orphanage itself, thus exploiting Liza's apparent death. So again, there's the background conflict of the orphanage as not exactly the most protective, nurturing body ever to be charged with watching children. Now, the orphans being at odds with authority figures is a little bit interesting now, 
now. We get the sense that Leader is kind of on their side, or at least is watching over them maybe more than anyone else in their life is. And even if the director is sort of an amoral, potentially antagonistic force, she doesn't seem to be paying close enough attention to the situation to be that big of a threat. She might be a threat by accident or as a result of their carelessness, but she's not actively interfering with the pursuit of their goals. Other guild members we've met so far are either neutral or at least friendly to Rico and the gang. Like Habo, like the guild workers that let Rico look at the letter, they also do not seem actively antagonistic to our characters and their goals. But while none of our conflicts have gotten worse, and some might be not a conflict at all, we do have some new things to worry about. The big one, I think, that kind of encompasses other conflicts within it is sort of the geopolitical situation. We got a few more details about the fact that this exists, but there's clearly some intrigue or some nation state kind of struggling that involves the abyss, that involves the raids that go down into it, that involves the guild and the members of it. Violence has happened in the past. Violence will probably happen again. And a new, perhaps nearer at hand threat is the presence of foreign cave raiders. Now I don't yet understand how access to the abyss is controlled, how you can possibly have foreign cave raiders when your city literally spans the entire opening of the abyss, but clearly they're a thing, clearly they're an ongoing issue. And finally, this may be no conflict at all, but we might as well bring it up now just in case, is how the guild and the other powers that be are going to react to Liza's notebook, to the things written in there, to the message she sent, to the fact that she may in fact be dead now, where before we didn't know. The guild or other authority may act in a way that does start to interfere with our characters' pursuit of their goals, interfere with their well-being. That's a little bit of conjecture, but it seems the way they've poured over all of Liza's things means they probably figured out as much or more than Reg and Rico did in their brief viewing. So as far as our characterizations go, we do have a new character we've kind of learned a lot about, which is Liza, and she's being characterized entirely through the lens of other people. The folk hero status she has among most of the people and the way she's celebrated, the sort of blank place in Rico that she represents, where she's more of a concept of a mother rather than an actual filled-in mother, but most importantly, the way Leader characterizes her in the story that he tells Rico. And his characterization of her is not 100% good. He brings up many of her bad sides and how, if it weren't for her actual success of this, she'd just be another garden variety weirdo. But despite the literal words he says, I think the subtext really is that he admires and is somewhat inspired by the things that Liza has done, both in her profession and the things she's done as a mother. Anyway, Rico continues to be more of the same, except for the way she reacted to the whistle coming up. We got to learn that she can be very introspective, that she can be very conflicted, and that she deals with this by withdrawing, that she deals with this with sort of shutting herself away and being quiet. Ray continues to be straightforward and pragmatic. We get more examples of that. He continues to have very human reactions whenever it comes to dealing with Rico. Not a lot of other characterizations on our other orphans, mostly reinforcing things we already know about them. Same goes for Director. The person I actually think we had the most characterization of in this episode uh, was Leader. Even though Leader's ostensibly telling us a story about Liza, we learn a lot about him. For example, that he apparently is also an orphan, or at the very least he was at the orphanage as a child when Liza returned with baby Rico. I think it's a reasonable assumption that a lot of the way he acts stems from how he feels about Liza and the kind of responsibility he thinks that entails. It makes a lot of sense that he sees himself as a little bit of a surrogate authority figure, protective figure to Rico specifically, and then her other friends sort of by proxy, because he was obviously very moved by what Liza did to save Rico's life. The things she gave up, the choices she made, and the prioritization she made. I mean, if Leader is actually an orphan, seeing a mother act like a mother like that would make quite the impression. Like, we know the director is not a mother figure, 
There's no maternal nurturing going on in this place, as far as I can tell. Honestly, the way he kind of has almost this permanently creased brow, I think may represent a little bit of an internal conflict in him. In the sense that, unlike Habo, I think he sees sort of the dark underbelly of the guild. I think he sees the kind of hijinks they've gotten up to, maybe some of their exploitive behavior. He's in a position to change that, but what he is in a position to do is to shield and protect the people who are most at risk from that, Rico, the other orphans. This may be me reading way too much into this, but since he is drawn in a way where he perpetually looks kind of annoyed or angry, and yet all of his actions seem reasonable, supportive, and somewhat caring, I feel like there's clearly some internal conflict, or at least a struggle between who he is and the situation he's in. Uh, world building wise, there's a lot as always. We went over most of it in scene by scene. The major things I think we learned that are important is how long these cave raids can go on, that these can be multi-month, multi-year expeditions. The fact that there is this large geopolitical thing going on, that there's authorities that can order cave raiders to go down into the abyss, even if it's clearly dangerous, even if they're pregnant, the fact that Liza may have been alive all this time and may still be alive, and also simply how big a deal Liza is, that she might be the greatest of all cave raiders, celebrated as a folk hero, a huge deal to this city. There's also the sort of teasing of what's ahead, both from the opening theme, images we haven't seen yet, and the sketches in Liza's notebook. While the abyss is still mostly mystery, we get a taste of what kind of wonder and clearly very different world awaits us below. So moving on to theme, looking at the things we already have written up here, I still have this abyss as symbol written. Now that's not a theme by itself. What's probably going to happen is the abyss will end up supporting one or more of these themes. It'll help reinforce the things that the series is already doing. Obviously our secret world of children is still in full effect. The, both the pluses and minuses of that. We, we talked about it throughout. In Search of a Pass has become very forefront. Everything about Liza that we learned, everything about Leader that we learned is a huge shaper of motive, is a huge shaper of what we're looking at going forward. History repeating, I think, just kind of still hangs over us. That'll most likely be something that's fleshed out mid-season toward the end of the season, where we'll start to see the past that we're starting to understand better happen again in the present. And then our sort of omnipresent power of friendship gets a boost with Reg joining the orphanage. We're getting one step closer to Rico seeing him as a companion as a peer, and I think those two's relationship is a central pillar of this whole series. We do have a new theme to look at, I think. Uh, I brought it up already, but this idea that the truth is buried, or alternatively, that the truth needs to be excavated. That is to say that the truth is not going to uncover itself. We don't have the truth. It's gonna take some active movers of fate to get at it. Indeed, Reg and maybe even Liza's characters might actually be the embodiment of this theme. That they may be the ones whose actions and decisions help us uncover the real truth about things that are going on in this world. There's another theme I noticed too that I didn't write up here, but there might be a theme of who you are versus what you do. That is to say your internal self versus your external self, how you see yourself versus how other people see you. Right now, Liza is kind of the embodiment of this, whereas the version of events that Leader knows, having known her personally and seeing what she did personally, is obviously very different from the townspeople, guild, whatever authority ordered her below. They have one version of her, and it's all about what she does, and Leader's version is all about who she is. What decisions she makes, when it really matters, where her priorities really lie. There's still a lot about her we don't understand, why she went back, why she's been missing, but I suspect finding more out about her will help us fill in the details and maybe flesh this theme out. We'll probably see other characters, especially Reg, go through the same kind of thing. So that's the board, I'll fill it in in a minute. Let's talk about what to watch for in the future here. There's a lot of details about the geopolitics that we need filled in. I wondered before about the details of the city, but it seems it's much bigger than just this city. Who are the powers that be? How authoritarian are they? What kind of struggle with foreign entities is even going on here? Where do the foreign cave raiders come from? How do they get in? All this is sort of tied up together. All these are things I'm sure we will learn at least some of because they've come up enough to clearly matter to our plot going forward, or at the very least, our understanding of the past. 
I still expect we'll have a better explanation of the whistles and what's going on there and why it matters that there's such a thing as a whistle that only one person can use. I suspect we're going to get more details about how Rico ended up at the orphanage. I think we're still missing some information there. Especially if Liza is like the most celebrated person ever. Why is her daughter at a freaking orphanage? Like is this really the best you can do for your like hero's daughter? I think we're clearly missing some of the details here. Finally, what we're going to watch for probably in the immediate future is that Reg's first cave raid is probably going to speed things up. We've had a couple episodes largely of setup now. We almost have all the information we need to sort of get into the abyss, really start undercovering what's going on there. I suspect his first raid is going to be sort of the catalyst for all that. We may very well meet some of these people that we've only seen in the opening theme during that first raid, and they'll likely have some kind of information that sort of propels everything forward. So talking about speculation, that last bit was actually a little bit speculative anyway, but I do think we will meet some new people in the near future that will change our understanding of where the story's going. Not thematically exactly, but maybe at least related to our goals and conflicts. Um, I speculate that Liza is somehow involved with Reg uh, and his origin. That may be too much on the nose since she literally has sketches about him, but maybe not. Maybe the whole reason Reg was in a position to save Rico from the split jaw was because he was already watching over her or looking for her in the first place. Again, this might be sort of like giving us false hope, but I suspect Liza is alive and at the bottom of the abyss. And maybe she's involved with sending Reg to the surface. It seems that she's intentionally sent this message back to the surface, using her whistle as a means of proving its authenticity. And how cryptic the whole message is and the notes are may be very intentional. It may not be part of her personality, but part of her cunning. She needs to get a message up to someone, maybe Rico, maybe Leader, maybe someone else, but she can't say it outright because of the guild, because of some other authority, because of some antagonistic force that we're not even aware of yet. There may be some reason she can't come up, assuming she's alive. Now, I'm getting into wild speculation territory here, but it may be that the whole thing where she brought Rico back instead of the unheard bell that first time put her at odds with authority? And she might be hiding out, and Rico might be at the orphanage as sort of a guarantee of her cooperation. That would certainly explain her unknown status all this time, and explain why Rico was at the orphanage in the first place. Anyway, it seems obvious to me that we're going to have some antagonistic cave raiders. If I had to bet money, it'll be those two that show up in the opening theme that we haven't met otherwise. And I also think that something is going to induce our characters to go deeper. That is to say, this is not going to be sort of a slow progression where they get better and better at raiding and keep going down. I think something unexpected and dramatic is going to happen, and they're going to go beyond the limits that they're allowed to go, beyond any limit that's basically advisable. Maybe that Rico and the gang's entire characterization as bucking authority or getting in trouble is preparing us to accept the idea they're going to break the biggest rules of all. Now, because of the dangers of the abyss, whenever that happens, if it does, that might be the point at which our party kind of narrows in scope. Maybe only a few people go down, I mean, I think Rico and Reg are obvious, but I suspect not that entire gang of orphans will be involved in whatever happens toward the end of the story. Anyway, that's my wild and mild speculation. This ends our review of episode two. Let's get to episode three, see if I was right about any of it. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.